welcome back to the bookcast. I am D.L. White, Atlanta-based author of romantic fiction featuring Black men and women, and we've been reading The Neverlist by D.L. White. This book will publish on September 25th, 2020. If you are listening to this in the future, you should be able to buy it at any retail site. Check my website at booksbydlwhite.com books. If you'd like to join my newsletter community, you can sign up at booksbydlwhite.com newsletter, chapter four, Esme. I lounged on O'Neill's bed, watching him pack for another trip. His ability to squeeze so much clothing into a miniature suitcase was a real-life game of Tetris. Aside from the uniform that he wore on the aircraft, he picked out a few extras for a midweek excursion, a fringe benefit of a career with an airline. How many days this time? Seven. Tuesday, I work LAX to Milan. He stopped packing long enough to gloat. Then three days off. I'm trying to meet up with a baddie at MXP. She doesn't speak much English, and I don't speak any Italian, but I know yes more and harder in every language. You have a girlfriend in Milan? Hell no, I ain't got no girlfriend. He gave me the usual side eye before heading back into his closet. He pulled out a pair of North Carolina blue track pants that looked amazing against his deep skin tone. The ladies love O'Neill Whitaker. France, London, Greece, I love Greek women, and they love black men. You know you're a fuckboy, right? He ignored me as I leaned back against his pillows, being careful not to drip water from the ice pack onto his bedding. I called in sick after all and hoped to get the swelling to go down by Monday. I did not want to be the center of attention and the subject of office gossip. Where else do you have baddies waiting for you to hit a couple days overtime? O'Neill removed the leisure wear from the hanger and folded it into a tidy square before squeezing it into his bag. If Delta flies there, I got a boo there. I text to let him know when I'm coming through. He shrugged, so nonchalant about worldwide hookups. If we can get together, we get together. And by get together, you mean just what I said. Get together. He turned back to the closet, this time surveying his collection of footwear. O'Neill loved shoes, designer slides, Italian leather brogues, the latest Jordans, and more pair of casual footwear from his favorite designer, Bruno Mali, than I could count, spilled over from his closet storage system onto shelves that line the walls. I keep telling you, Ez, it's a good gig. I can still get you on. I shook my head without even thinking about it. You know I need one foot on the ground at all times. O'Neill frowned at me. You could do it. You just don't want to. No, I can't. There's a difference. You forget you're even in the air. If something was going to happen, I stop. I freehand shot out in front of me as if that could guard me against the words he was about to say. I don't even know how you can get on an airplane. My parents are in an RV and I'm nervous about that, let alone a plane. Your parents are fine. How are you the only one in your family that has never been on an airplane? I was on an airplane once, I mumbled. I reached for a decorative pillow that coordinated with the brown and cream palette of O'Neill's room. I leaned onto it, seeking relief from my arm, which was tired from holding an ice pack to my face for hours. You mean that time our families tried to go to Disney World together, and you screamed bloody murder as soon as the pilot pushed away from the gate? Your mom had to get off the plane with you. Shut up. I was scared. I protested, but laughed with O'Neill. It was funny now. When I was six years old, not so much. Aunt Carol had to put you on Amtrak. You didn't show up for two days. Whatever. I lobbed a pillow at O'Neill, giving him plenty of time to duck, then retrieve it from the floor and toss it back. It was a pleasant ride. You are too old to have never flown, Esme. You are too old to have never done a few things. 
His eyebrows rose, and his mouth curved downward into a disapproving line. Don't start. It'll happen when it's meant to happen. At what point can it happen if you run eligible men out of the house? I groaned. Don't start with that either. Look, I'm impressed that you even went out on a date because you do nothing but work, watch TV, and read books. How are you going to meet someone with your nose in the book? I go to the bookstore. I might meet a book lover. O'Neill dropped a pair of Molly and Adidas into his suitcase before heading to the bathroom to retrieve his shaving kit. Listen, the other night was a lot, I know. But that man not only took out your attacker, he also drove all the way out here to bring your wallet to you. He could have dropped it in the mail, left it on the doorstep, gave it to the police. You don't even know that it was out of his way. I shifted as my arm was falling asleep. I bet he thought he was getting something for his trouble. O'Neill rifled through his shaving kit for a few seconds before zipping it and tucking it into the full compartment. Would that have been so bad? It was funny. He got some style. He was flirting with you hard, Esme. You wouldn't be begging me to give him a chance if you were with me at Bistro. From what you told me, Es, you were rude too. Don't act like you don't have rusty bitch face. I do not have- I stopped protesting when O'Neill snapped his fingers at me. You do. I stopped protesting when O'Neill snapped his fingers at me. You do. He was probably very polite when he asked if he could take the chair. How was he supposed to know you got stood up? I thanked him. What else was I supposed to say? He was flirting too hard for you to run him out of here the way you did. Couldn't you offer him a little something as a reward for saving your life? At that, I rolled my eyes. I should fuck him because he brought my wallet over here? He did not save my life, O'Neill. You can fuck him for no reason if that's what you want. But it doesn't matter. You could have been warmer to him. You ice men out, as He zipped the carry-on case closed and flopped down to lounge next to me, stuffing the pillow I had thrown behind his back. Remember when your parents sold you this house and I moved in to brighten your life? We said that you'd take this time to get out there to let your younger, handsome cousin show you how to get social. My younger, handsome cousin got me out there. I got social. I joined a dating website and got mugged. Why should I keep listening to you? It was one date. He sat up, resting on one elbow. You scared of men now? No, I'm not scared of men. I work with men. I'm friends with men. I live with a man. Don't get loud with me. Cousins don't count. Whatever. I love men. I don't have to be nice to that one. You gotta figure some things out, cousin. That mentality will keep you from living life and accepting people into your world. Your entire existence is Shonda Rhimes' TV shows. Shonda can't write your future. See, that's where you're wrong. She'd do an outstanding job writing my future. O'Neill took any opportunity to rant about my lack of life experiences. I was the complete opposite of my thrill-seeking cousin. There were so many things I'd never done. Flying an airplane. Swim in the ocean. Have sex. Not that I'd never seen a man that made my entire body thump. Trevante Rose walks among us. Being the baby of the family and somewhat of an awkward, unfortunate-looking duckling until I was well into adulthood meant that I bloomed late in life. I was in my 20s before I grew into my Negro nose, and at the urging of my older sisters and cousin, began investing in my skin and doing more with my hair than tucking it under an unimpressive wig or pulling it into a bun. When I earned my MBA, my family gave me cards to several clothing stores, gifting me thousands of dollars. I roped my friends into helping me shop to accentuate a large bust, thick thighs, and a high, round ass. You dress like Whoopi Goldberg, O'Neill had declared, right before he swept all of my roomy, floor-length captains 
into a bag. He was so happy to drop them off at Goodwill. My closet was now bursting with dresses made of rich, indulgent fabrics that flattered instead of hid my shape and pants tailored to fit. My drawers were full of the softest, frilliest things that had ever touched my skin. What I couldn't do to my coils and now unblemished skin, my sister, Jada, could handle at her salon. I was coming into my own at work, too. I'd been promoted to senior contracts administrator at Benning, Mergers and Acquisitions Consulting, which didn't bring much prestige, but it meant more money, more responsibility, and that they could assign me to bigger and more lucrative case profiles. My boss was an ass, but I can handle him. I hoped that I could prove my worth and move out of his department. The last leaves of my bloom had everything to do with my heart and, by consequence, my body. I guarded my energy fiercely and waited to have sex for a defined reason. I didn't want to give any part of myself to someone who wasn't invested. I refused to get close to someone who didn't genuinely care for me. Boys in high school and young men in college are more concerned with getting off than my self-worth. The longer I said no, watching men be cool with walking away instead of finding out how they could hear a different answer, the easier it became to say no. And here I was, about to turn 40, and still saying no. I was afraid, but not in the traditional sense. Sense didn't scare me. I was, in fact, primed for it, more than ready to meet him if he was a handsome specimen that produced lusty thoughts and ride him over the virginal rainbow. I just didn't want that ride to be all about him. My fear lied in meeting a man who didn't know or care what it meant to share a deeply intimate part of myself with him. And until I met him, the answer would have to be no. O'Neill wasn't wired that way and would never understand. Did you watch last week's Insecure yet? I asked, desperate to change the subject. I've been waiting for you to be home so we can watch. He was already getting up. Yeah, then I have to get in the bed. I have a 6 a.m. flight. Will you pop some popcorn? Chapter 5. Esme. A voicemail indicator on my desk phone pulsed as I got to my cube on Monday morning. My box was usually empty, so something big was happening, and I was already behind. I dropped into my chair and lifted the phone handset, tucking it between my shoulder and ear while reaching for the keyboard to log on to the network. Esme, I've been looking for you. You're needed in the great room right away. Reese, my boss's assistant, stood outside my workplace, prim and proper in a dark pantsuit and three-inch heels. Her long hair was twisted into its usual chignon, and her jewelry, as always, was understated. Pearls today. I glanced up, voicemail droning in one ear. The great room. That was the big conference room at the opposite corner of the floor, decorated in overly southern tones. I was definitely behind. I just got in. I was out Friday, and I'm catching up. No time, she barked. Grab a notepad. I took the advice, swiping a half-used pad and a pen from the jar I kept at my desk before following Reese through the hallway to the other side of the suite. The partners and senior staff worked in plush offices and meeting spaces and not cookie-cutter cubes where they expected the contract staff to pump out paper. Though they had promoted me, I still did the heavy lifting of detailing the pertinent points of an acquisition, whether it was a friendly coming together or a hostile takeover. Partners didn't care what I learned in my MBA track or what I'd read that morning in a business journal. I was a highly paid clerk, which got under my skin. What's this meeting about? I whispered, keeping pace with Reese's long strides. She was five foot ten in stocking feet, most of which was muscled runner's legs. I didn't have time to listen to my voicemail. An acquisition, she answered. The client wants to keep it friendly if he can help it. There are millions of dollars on the line if this doesn't go through. 
she smiled, bringing softness to her brusque demeanor and naturally husky tone. No pressure. I inched a hand up to feel my face to make sure the swelling was still undetectable. I had spent the weekend with bags of frozen vegetables pressed against my skin and avoiding O'Neill's not-so-gentle teasing about Trey Pettigrew. I closed my account at Black Singles Match as soon as I made it back to my computer that night. I wouldn't be going back online anytime soon. As I told the investigating officer from the local police department, I wouldn't be prey ever again if I could help it. That included even thinking about a man that could joke about my black eye. I purged all thoughts of Thursday night and the incident from my mind as I pulled open the conference room doors. My boss, Ethan Byron, and a guest were seated at one end of the long table, casually chatting with porcelain coffee cups and saucers in front of them. Scattered across the table were stacks of binders and manila folders stuffed with documents. Gentlemen, I greeted them as they stood, nodding to Ethan before extending a hand to our guest, a salt-and-pepper-haired man with sparkling blue eyes, a George Clooney-like appearance, and a firm grip. Ethan waved me toward an empty seat. As may, meet Thomas Miller, president of Miller Design. He's negotiating an acquisition. He wants to make sure he's working from a power position. I nodded as he continued unfurling the events to date. When he finished, I swiveled my chair toward Thomas Miller who had contributed clarifying details to the overview. Esme is one of our senior associates, Ethan said. I think this project would be a great proving ground for her. She'd be cut and dry, but if it isn't, she'll know how to work you through it. Was the deal always contentious? I asked Thomas. Not at all, he replied, lips pursed while he shook his head. I began work with the CEO earlier this year when we got the news that a bid was coming down the pipe for a 328-bed facility. That's a large project for design alone, and we don't build, so we'd have to subcontract the construction. I reached out to a potential buyer to gauge their interest in purchasing my company in efforts to jointly submit for this bid. Miller paused, picked up his coffee cup, and drained it. The cup wasn't back in the saucer more than a few seconds before Reese swept in to fill each cup, including mine. When I caught her eye, she winked at me. When the senior Pettigrew fell ill, I put this deal to bed in my mind. When the senior Pettigrew fell ill, I put this deal to bed in my mind. And I got a call that his son had picked up the reins and he'd been continuing the deal if I was still amenable. We'd use Miller experts to expand their design department, use their team to construct what we design. Should have been a beautiful marriage of companies. I didn't hear much past the familiar name. Did you say Pettigrew as in Trey Pettigrew? His eyes lit up. Any history with them? Let's just say that we're acquainted. Miller pushed a frustrated sigh through his thin lips. Trey is difficult. Argumentative, a stickler for a certain price point. Seems like he's trying to impress his father, and I'm not interested in that performance. We can do great work as one company, but I want my team taken care of. Most of them have been with me since the beginning. That's where you come in. Of course, I responded with a solemn nod of my head. Concessions should be made to compensate furloughed employees. Offers should be made for severance and healthcare continuation. And then there's a subject of shares and you're speaking my language. Miller smiled, which frightened his face. If I wasn't mistaken, his shoulders sagged a bit in relief. Let's get together and hammer out the salient points. I'd like to carve out space for you at our offices. Binding is 20 minutes from town on a good traffic day and we never have a good traffic day. Pettigrew drives to my office for our meetings. I glanced at Ethan. Junior associates could not work off-site, and though I'd recently been promoted, this was my first project in my promoted role. 
Of course, Thomas, Ethan offered without hesitation. Whatever you need for as long as you need it. Or until the retainer checks bounce. Miller chuckled, then checked his watch. Speaking of bad traffic days, I've got a meeting. I'm afraid I need to leave now to make it on time. He stood, reaching for the suit jacket he'd shed and hung on the chair behind him. I've requested your full-time help, so you'll report to my office in the interim. We'll set you up with access and a space to work. I can have my assistant send directions. I stood and offered Miller a parting handshake. I was in that area for drinks last week. I'm sure I can find Miller design. He slipped into his jacket, moving down the lapels. What restaurant? Bistro, I answered. Do you know the place? His expression darkened as soon as the word left my mouth. Know it. I witnessed a mugging last week right in the parking lot. My heart thumped a beat so hard that it almost threw me back into my seat. Thomas Miller had been at Bistro the night I was attacked. That meant that Trey had been meeting with Miller when he tried to take my chair, and that he left that meeting leaving multiple millions on the table to rescue me. I almost, almost felt bad about how much pedigree money I was about to spend, but not enough to turn down the job. Was I interested in dating Trey? Not really. Was I interested in spending Trey's money and making him come correct? Oh, absolutely. This would be fun. See you in the morning, Mr. Miller. We're going to make a great team. As soon as Thomas Miller left the room, I turned to face Ethan. His cheerful, easygoing demeanor had disappeared, and the stone face with the ever-present divots of irritation between his eyes had replaced it. Was this assignment your idea? I think we both know that it wasn't. He scoffed, scowling. What aren't you telling me? What's going to trip me up? You've been in and out of human resources, whining about the opportunities we haven't given you. Now you're whining about an opportunity to serve a senior consultant. Do you want the project or not? Ethan, I'm just asking. His expression told me that any argument would be a waste of my time. I threw up my hands in defeat. I'll do what I can to close it. Just do the job, Esme. Mind your business and write the contract so Thomas can close his deal. He stood and buttoned his jacket before stepping around the table. And don't fuck this up by thinking too much. Chapter 6 Tray. Weekends were for resting, but my mother had me at the house and in the yard completing the honey-do lifts she'd normally set out for my father. Like many middle-class families, I didn't grow up with maids to do the housekeeping and staff to manage the garden. Though my parents could be considered wealthy now, they were set in their ways and mired in routine. They set aside every other Saturday for taking care of the outside of the house, mowing the lawn, weeding the garden, washing the windows, spraying down the driveway, painting the garage door. More than once, I'd offered to pay for someone to take care of these things for them, but they wouldn't hear of it, so I took it as a compliment that they wanted to see me and trusted me to do things around the house since Pops couldn't do it. I also used it as an excuse to get a home-cooked breakfast. I did so little resting that by Monday morning I was beat, so I was relieved to receive an email that rescheduled my early Monday meeting with Miller Design to Tuesday morning. I slept late, lounging in bed for a few extra minutes with a cup of coffee and my tablet. I liked to check the newspapers, the markets, and any personal email before starting my day. Pop's words from dinner on Friday night had rolled through my head all weekend like a record player on skip. I could not fail to bring the steel home. I spent Monday locked in my office, my desk line on Do Not Disturb, getting all my ducks in a row, all my talking points laid out. When I strolled into Miller Design at the stroke of 9 o'clock on Tuesday, I was more than ready. 
I stopped at the front desk and signed in, then headed for the locked door that separated the offices from the reception area. The receptionist usually buzzed me through, and I went to Miller's office. Oh, actually, she said, her mousy brown curls springing around her face as she stood. Mr. Miller requested that you wait here, or he'll come get you when he's ready for your meeting. I strode back to the reception desk and stood in front of her. Her gold-brushed nameplate read Jenny Collins. The longer I studied her, the more uncomfortable she became until she reached back for her chair and resumed her seat. Jenny, is it? She nodded. Mr. Miller set a meeting for 9 a.m. I am here. I am never, ever late, and yet I'm told I'll be... I waved a hand casually in her face, waiting until he's ready to see me, just hanging out here in the waiting area like I'm an average vendor and not a potential buyer. That's the situation. Yes, sir, she replied. That's the situation. So it's like that. Miller was making a play for power, first by moving our meeting, then making me wait. I urged myself to remain neutral, to not play the game. It wouldn't give him any points. I was writing the check. Whether or not Miller wanted to admit it, the control was on the Pettigrew side. I was ready to use all available resources to bring the companies together with or without Miller's help. I turned on a heel and headed to guest seating, a gathering of chairs that were modular and sterile in design. Miller thought his interior decorating skills were avant-garde and chic industrial. It was boring and dry, white, steel, wood, boring. Pops thought a leader should stand out. Be bold. Make yourself seen and heard. Pettigrew signs were a bright yellow and unmistakable icon on top of the refurbished factory that housed the business, a beacon of pride outside any construction site. The locked door clicked and swung open. Miller strode through it, wearing a gray suit that matched the color of the walls. His slim build moved toward me and hand outstretched. Thomas wasn't one to raise his voice or speak out of turn like his building and his taste in decor. He was plain and unemotional. The guy creeped me out, honestly. No one was that calm, especially when someone was trying to take over your company. Sorry to keep you waiting. I had a last-minute meeting. He gripped my hand and pumped it a few times before he began guiding me toward the door. You know the drill. I am hoping you can hammer out these details you're stalled on. My father is not pleased with how long this is dragging out. Instead of walking us to his office, Miller was strolling down one hallway and up another to a side of the building I'd never visited before. I agree. I'm eager to get things wrapped up. He stopped in front of a closed door and grinned, his eyes sparkling. My gut twisted with foreboding. I'd like to introduce you to someone. The door swung open and Miller stepped inside the room, blocking the view. I dropped my suitcase into the nearest chair, expecting to shake the hand of a board member and attorney. Hell, he could have introduced me to Chuck E. Cheese and I'd have been less surprised than I was to see Esme Whitaker seated on one side of the table. Esme stood and offered a hand across the table. Mr. Pettigrew, how nice to see you again. My mind went blank at the moment that I saw her, her hair in a bun, her full lips in a deep red, her dress a short sleeve, rose and heart print that clung to her shape like, mm, it was so nice to see her again. I'd been used to her face popping up in my mind with a frown on her thick lips that I was taken aback at her smile. Sarcastic as it was, it was prettier in person than it was on the card I had taken from her wallet. I glanced at her outstretched hand and hesitated long enough to see her smile falter. Then I bit out a laugh and took her hand in mine, giving her a friendly squeeze. I didn't know why she was standing in front of me, but my day had just become interesting. Miss Whitaker, I greeted her. 
an unexpected pleasure. The lines of confusion across Milo's forehead were comical. You said you didn't know, Mr. Pettigrew. We met briefly last week, Esme offered. He rescued me from the attacker at Bistro. Milo's face brightened. Then he frowned, deep lines forming between his eyes. He sank into a chair. That was you? So you... Are you all right? I'm fine, she answered. And ready to work. She sat, clicked a pen, and hovered the tip over a blank page on her notepad. Shall we? Miller cleared his throat and pushed his chair forward. Trey, I've retained the services of Benning Mergers and Acquisitions Consulting. I don't want to leave anything on the table. No loopholes. Miss Whitaker will work with you to paper a deal that benefits both sides. I've made my negotiable and non-negotiable terms clear. I expect I'll be conferencing with her from time to time. He clasped his hands, gazing at me with an arrogant stare that made my fists clench, then throb. I wanted to pound on Thomas Miller like I'd pounded on Esme's assailant last week. Once the bid comes out, we'll take some time to put together a proposal and submit. So long as we paper our deal before then, we're in the clear. If we don't have an agreement on these terms before we submit, Miller unclasped his hands to spread his arms and hunched his shoulders in a helpless gesture. We have no deal. I can't waste more time on this. Miller won't go under if we don't get to the proposal stage. Neither will Pettigrew. I won't sign an agreement that isn't beneficial on my end. I've spoken to my board of directors, and they're not inclined to sell the company over my objection. This is your last chance to pull this deal together, or it goes down the drain. I fixed my gaze on Esme. The upturn of her lips was a dead giveaway. He was enjoying this. Not only was she working for the other side, but the knowledge that she stood between Pettigrew Construction and a lucrative contract must have turned her crank. I unclenched my jaw, glanced at Miller, then at Esme and back to Miller. I gave a single, resolute nod. Let's get started. Vincent's high-pitched hyena laugh carried out of the office and, I was sure, down the hall to the offices of the other company executives and the area where our executive assistants worked. I didn't see what was so funny, but as I joined Vincent in his office for our afternoon taste, his laughter had risen from an amused chuckle to a brash, loud cackle. So. To recap, he got out amid gusts of laughter. You met this woman last week when you played Captain America. Come to find out she's working with Miller. Boy, you don't have no kind of luck. He slapped his knee and wheezed. I worried that he'd stop breathing for a few moments. He pulled out his tie, loosening it at the neck while taking a healthy swig of scotch. Are you done? Sorry, sorry. He brought his glass to his lips and tipped it back while he tried to regain composure. I'm trying to imagine you working with this woman, who isn't your biggest fan to start with, then having to update Saul when you tank this deal because she's got a vendetta against you. It's not a vendetta, I argued, pointing with my glass. It's a misunderstanding. Mm, he hummed while sipping more liquor. She didn't misunderstand that you thought you had turned on the charm and instead you turned on the hose. Don't you have any work to do, Vincent? Your father asked me to keep an eye on you. I'm doing my job right now. We should have nipped this in the bud last week. Speaking of Saul, what are you going to tell him? I got up and paced the space between Vincent's desk and the windows, squinting into the rays of the evening sunset. I'd come back to Pettigrew after my meeting with Esme and Miller and headed straight for Vincent's office to download the day's events. I'm not going to tell him anything, I announced, 
Not your best idea, Trey. I'll tell him when we're about to file ownership papers. It'll be a funny story about a bump in the road. He turned, leaning forward and grasping the edge of his desk. Trey, it's well and good for you to want to stress my father out, but I'm not going to do it. Not a word. He'll get worked up. I'll never hear the end of it from my mother. Not to mention that he wasn't impressed by my heroics, claiming I'd stuck my nose in where I didn't belong instead of following orders. If he heard that last week's distraction was working to Miller's benefit, him might send him back to cardiology, after which he would throw me off the project, if not out of the company, and destroy any hope for my future. Chapter 7 Esme O'Neill, when you get out from under, or over, or out of, damn it, when you're unentangled, call me. I have an update you will not believe. I hope you're having a good time. Sirius XM Hot 100 tuned back in when I pressed the end key on the steering wheel. I was still giggling about my day. I had been prepared to work into the night, but soon after Thomas left us to our negotiation, Trey picked up his copy of the proposed agreement and said he'd take it to his office to read and make notes. I'll be in touch, he said, before stalking from the room and down the hall. A few minutes later, Thomas came back. Well, that was interesting. I relaxed, leaning back in the cool leather chair. How do you gauge his reaction to the wrench you've thrown into the process? I knew he'd be unhappy. I knew he'd be unhappy. I don't know what the repercussions will be. He might pull out. Hmm, I mused, thinking it over, then shaking my head. He'd have given up already if he could. You're right. Miller paused, then smiled, but he tried to tamp down his apparent joy. Senior must still run the show from his sickbed. I'd say that you should expect something underhanded, but you've already predicted that he'd try to go around you. Knowing that he can't go above you to buy out the company was the final blow. Thomas nodded, rubbing his bottom lip with his thumb, his forehead creased. I hope you're right. I want this deal, but only if we do it the right way, which isn't the cheap way. I agree. I closed the lid of my laptop and began gathering up my notes, files, and supplies. I expect Pettigrew to come back tomorrow with a marked-up document, and he'll be ready to fight. Are you ready to fight? asked Thomas. I watched that attack last week. No worries, Mr. Miller, I assured him. I'm fine. I'm ready to fight. Good. Very good. He nodded, then pumped his fist before walking out of the room. I had stopped at the neighborhood grocery, put away the food, and was putting together a homemade pizza when O'Neill returned my call from his hotel room in L.A. I waited until he left on a trip to do the grocery shopping because while we split the grocery bill and shared food, O'Neill ate more in a day than I ate in a week and somehow stayed slim enough to rock the hell out of that Delta uniform. Was he surprised? What did he say when he saw you? Were you nice to him as... I think it shocked him to see me. And I was very nice, I added. I sprinkled a few diced vegetables around a pre-made crust covered in sauce and a layer of cheese. I was cordial, polite, businesslike. You mean dry. You didn't give him anything to work with. He said it was nice to see me again. I told you that man was flirting with you. Was he nice to you? He was okay. I think he's used to getting his way and Miller isn't rolling over. Just remember... Eventually, this deal will be over. Think about what comes after that and treat him accordingly. Don't kill the vibe. I laughed. What vibe? The I-need-a-man vibe. I laughed again. Technically, I don't need a man. You're right. Technically, you need a dick. 
I opened the oven door and slid my pizza inside. I shut the door, then set the timer and settled onto a stool at the counter with a glass of Stella Rosa that I liked and didn't cost me $20. You're talking like I'd let him get near me. You don't have to date him, Esme. You just need him to do a job. I don't want to not date him either. I don't need a fuck buddy. Why are you trying so hard to be difficult, Es? Why are you dictating who I should fuck? You've never thought twice about anything. You're just fearless out in these streets. Fearless my ass. I'm a black man in America. Fear is a feeling and I don't live by it. I do what I want. I am never going to believe that you get scared, bungee jumper, roller coaster rider, airline attendant. You love giving up control and letting whatever happens happen. I can't live like that because I don't see it as giving up control. Yeah, I get scared, but then I get over it. I get up and I get on that plane every day knowing it could be my last flight. I take control. I don't let fear keep me from a great job that I love and benefits I love more. His sinister cackle made me laugh. By the way, I won't be over, under, inside of my Italian daddy until Wednesday. Tonight, I'll be with Roxanne. Who's Roxanne? A honey I met on the leg from Houston to L.A. She has a long layover, so we're going to lay over. Well, damn, player. Is she cute? Puppies are cute. Kittens are cute. This girl, not nah, shit. This woman, she's got those Michelle Obama arms. You know what I mean? I tap out when you bring the forever first lady into your sexcapades. So you're going out with Roxanne tonight, then spending three days with what's-her-name in Milan? Georgie is her name. But yeah, I'm kicking it with Roxanne tonight. We're about to get something to eat before I get a bite to eat, know what I mean? O'Neal, I scolded through laughter. I am telling your mother. She don't want to hear your gossip about her baby boy. But for real, though, as you don't have to jump out of a plane or anything, but decide that you're going to stop being scared of shit. Make it a goal or part of that intention-setting thing you do. Make a list of things you need to stand up to before you turn 40. Find a way to live your life. Eh, I'll think about it. Mm-hmm. I feel you rolling your eyes at me through the phone line. I nag because I care. Yeah, yeah, I responded, though I was rolling my eyes. Love you. Fly safe and wear condoms. Always, cousin. Love you. We signed off, and I pulled the earbud from my ear. While waiting for the pizza to cook, I basked in the silence of the house since O'Neal was gone. He had been getting on me a lot lately about all the things I'd never done. I asked him to do so, but he didn't have to go that hard. I'd never been to Six Flags over Georgia because I was afraid of roller coasters and heights. I didn't go to water parks or the ocean because I couldn't swim. I couldn't swim because I was afraid to go underwater. O'Neill had even offered to take me on a buddy pass to an exotic locale of my choosing, but I couldn't muster up enough courage to get on an airplane. Ten things I've never done, I mused. I reached for a notepad near the phone and humored O'Neill and myself. I already knew what number one would be, so I started at ten. Twenty minutes later, I munched on pizza and went over my list. Then laughed at it, tore it off of the notepad, and shoved it into my pocket because that list would never see the light of day. When O'Neill was home next week, I would show him and he'd be proud. I would pretend to be ready to knock some of them off. Then he would leave on an international flight, or he'd be occupied by another woman and we would let the conversation fade into the atmosphere, like always. After dinner, I put away my leftover pizza. I loaded my plate and wine glass into the dishwasher before heading upstairs. Aside from the usual creaks and moans of an old house, it was dark and quiet, just how I liked it.
I hit the second floor landing and walked down the hall, touching each of the photos that my mother had left hanging on the walls. Portraits of my sisters, twins who were 10 years older, my parents, our extended family, including O'Neill and I, evenly spaced visual mementos of the Whitaker family. My parents had planned for one more child after my twin sisters, but despite trying for several years, nothing happened. As soon as they'd settled into parenting and had considered childbearing days to be over, oops, I could admit that I was a spoiled baby and an overprotected child. By the time I was old enough to want things, my sisters were old enough to indulge the baby. I played the baby of the family card expertly. I wasn't naturally adventurous, and they never pushed me to explore. Raising two children had taught my parents a few things, namely that they were tired. So the easier my life was, the easier their lives were. But working hard for things builds character, and I learned early that the easiest way to not make mistakes was to not take risks. Which is how I had ended up with a ridiculous list of things I had never done and was too afraid to try. In the past few years, though, my life had changed, encouraging my parents to sell their house to me, and the chain of convenience stores they own to a conglomerate, then buy that RV they've been eyeing for years, and take the tour of the country that they had always dreamt of taking, were among the first steps. Soon after I bought the house and my parents set off on their cross-country adventure, I invited O'Neill to move in. He was always in the air, and it didn't make sense for him to have an apartment, and I wouldn't have to live in a big house by myself. I entered my bedroom painted a sunny yellow that took up half of the second level of the house. The room used to be smaller, but once Jada and Jewel moved out, my parents had the second level remodeled, expanding the master bedroom. On one end, floor-to-ceiling bookcases and an old but so comfortable chair flanked a gas fireplace that I loved to curl up in and read. Much to O'Neill's annoyance, I was perfectly happy to spend a weekend in the corner of my bedroom, a fire over my shoulder, and a book in my hands. The other side of the room housed furniture, bed, mirrored dresser, five-drawer bureau, TV stand, and a flat-screen TV. If I didn't have to leave my room to eat or go to work, I would live there. This also annoyed O'Neill, who was rarely home even if he was in town. If we weren't cousins and hadn't grown up together, I wasn't sure we would even get along. I roared a loud yawn, pulling off clothes as I aimed for the bathroom. The folded list that had been my dinner entertainment popped out of the pocket of the jacket I'd worn that day. I picked it up, unfolded it, laughed at it again, and tossed it into my bag. Maybe I could stand to knock a few easy items off the list. I reached into the shower and turned on the hot water, letting the room fill with warmth and steam before stepping under the pulsating shower head. Grabbing a bottle of my favorite gel, I lathered up a bath puff and, as was my habit during my evening shower, reviewed my day, mentally picking out the high marks as I scrubbed the day away. Trey's face, full of shock and surprise, a high. I rinsed off, pulling the shower head off its holder to spray the suds from my legs and feet. My conversation with O'Neill bubbled up again, and his assumption that I would let Trey Pettigrew do anything to me, let alone share my first sexual experience, since I would sit on the opposite side of the negotiation table, standing between him and several million dollars. Sex would be the last thing on his mind. Well, it should be the last thing on his mind. I'd be lying if I said it was the last thing on mine. Damn you, O'Neill. I pushed away a nagging desire to see Trey outside of that windowless conference room for reasons that had nothing to do with work. It wasn't appropriate to imagine his muscular frame, his long face, the beard, 
His soulful eyes that seem to say so much, even more than those lips that might feel nice as they move down my neck, across my shoulders, down my body. I shook my head to clear it, but my overactive imagination did not obey the command. I pulsed at the mental image of him kneeling before me. One of my legs hung over his shoulder, the soft curls of his beard tickling my inner thighs. I could almost feel the flutter of his lips against the delicate skin at my core, inching closer to where my heartbeat thumped a powerful rhythm. The power of the mind was strong. My daydreams produced images and sounds causing my body to convulse and a jolt to speed down my spine. My knees buckled so quickly that I reached out for something, anything, to hold on to. I nearly pulled the wired shower caddy off of the wall. In a few moments, I regained my composure. When my lustful fog had cleared, my resolve had returned. Trey Pettigrew was technically the enemy. No matter how many orgasms my daydreams about him produced, I absolutely could not even entertain getting close to him. That concludes our reading for today. Thank you so much for joining me for the bookcast. Catch me tomorrow for more chapters of The Neverlist by D.L. White. 